All right, everyone, this is my Bible. I believe it's God's word. I believe every word is true. And it's all that I need. Right. Luke chapter 6. We've watched Luke put the setting. We've watched him just do it in just such beautiful order. And now Jesus is in the middle of his, his ministry or maybe toward the front part, front to middle of his ministry. And, and opposition is starting to arise. And, and it's almost like these Pharisees and these religious leaders are kind of stalking Jesus. And so we read these words. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is so unlawful on the Sabbath? You know, you can just tell. They're just nitpicking. They're just, they have added to the Ten Commandment law, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, religious leaders would, would tag on a bunch of other little picky uni things that it would be impossible for people to ever, ever obey them all. And so they're, they're kind of waiting for Jesus to make a mistake. And so, you know, what, when I was studying this, I, I read someone say that according to the Pharisee, their laws. They committed four violations here. And I'm going to tell you, by picking a few kernels, I mean, these guys had to be hungry. I mean, no salt, no butter, nothing. Just popped in those kernels. They had to be hungry. And, and they're making such a big deal out of this. So listen to this, four violations. This is what they did by just picking those few kernels. Reaping, threshing, winnowing and preparing food on the Sabbath. Isn't that just ridiculous? One mouthful, they committed four violations. So you can tell, they're, they're out to get them. So Jesus' answer, though, Jesus' answer is so good. Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? You know, Jesus knew that they prided themselves in knowing the scriptures so well. This story was in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And they should have been well versed with that story. So Jesus just calmly says, hey, haven't you ever, haven't you read it? And then there was a little innuendo. Um, and if you have read it, don't you even know what it means? So he kind of he kind of um, pinned him to the wall a little bit because he said, "Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, taking the consecrated bread. He ate what is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions." So by that statement, Jesus is saying, "Don't you have a heart, guys?" Sometimes we have to care for people more than follow a ritual. These men were hungry. David's men were hungry. Sometimes you just have to bypass that ritual because we care more for the person. And then Jesus made this statement, which I think is principle number two. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He is 
using this to also show them again who he is. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He, he's thinking, maybe that will click. Maybe, maybe then they'll start to realize who I am. Because Jesus never has revenge or animosity. He's just making a statement. He tries to use this to get them to see who he is. But he's also saying, if I'm, if I'm Lord of the Sabbath, then I know what's wrong. I know what's wrong. What, what's wrong to do on the Sabbath. I know if somebody is really com- is disobeying and committing a sin, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I should know what's right and wrong. And you wonder if, if I'm Lord of the Sabbath, I can call the shots. I, I can, I can kind of allow whatever I want. But I think basically he's saying, being that I am the Lord of the Sabbath, I know what's important and what isn't. And look in verse 6, it's just like they're waiting for him again on the Sabbath because they're thinking, you know, this is what he does. This is what he does on the Sabbath. And so let's, let's just, I think they were just going to wait for him. And on another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and, and was teaching a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely. You know, that's a very sad line. They were waiting to accuse him, so they watched him closely. What a lesson for us to be able to see that that you can be so close. You can be so close to Jesus. He can be right there, and yet you can be so far away. I mean, there he is, and yet they really... They really don't even, they really don't see the heart of the matter. They're just out. Because I think they, that Jesus was a threat. I think he was treading on their territory. Um, they just didn't like him. And they chose to not let their spiritual eyes and ears be open. How you can, how you can see Jesus standing right there and, and have a, a, such a motive to accuse him. And then it says Jesus looked at the man who had the shriveled hand and he said, get up and stand in front of everyone. I mean, Jesus knew what was going on in the religious leaders' minds. He knew that their heart wasn't in it. He knew that they chose not to believe who he was. He knew they were, that they were just waiting to pounce but then he looks at that man with a shriveled hand and he says, get up and stand in front of everybody. Did, did you kind of think at first, boy, you know, Jesus, couldn't you have done it a little more subtly? I mean, this poor guy, he's special needs, he's handicapped. You know, the last thing they want to do is be made conspicuous. Usually they like to sit in the back row. And Jesus says, stand up in front of everyone. Now, of course, Jesus isn't out to embarrass him or to, or to, or to make him, to, him feel upset. Or He isn't out for that. He just knows. He just knows that if you are obedient, you are going to see what's going to happen. And I think this whole chapter is on choice. What are you going to choose in these certain moments? 
How are you going to act? How are you going to react in these moments? You've got two choices. You're going to do it God's way or you're going to do it your own way. When The more I thought about Jesus saying to that man with the shriveled hand when he said, just stand up in front of everyone. Have you ever heard the phrase, boy, that, he, he drew me out of my comfort zone. And I think all of us understand what that means. We, we all have our places that we are comfortable. And sometimes when the Lord challenges us or calls us, you think, oh no, I don't think I can, I don't think I can handle that. And he draws us out of our comfort zone to see if we're willing to obey. Obey what? That he is able to work through us. He wants to test, like we've been talking about. We can't test him, but he can test us. He wants to see what's really in our heart. We profess to be such believers. We profess to have such great faith. But sometimes he's just got to test us to see if we really do. Maybe this was even a test for that man with a shriveled hand to draw him out of his comfort zone to see if he'll be obedient anyway and look. And he got up. He got up and he stood there. And then Jesus said to them, he then looked as the man was standing there and was obedient. He then looked at the crowd of religious leaders and said, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it. He's saying, I want you to answer this. Is there any day of the week that we should just cancel out and not do good on it? I mean, I think he's trying to be obvious and yet trying to be nice but yet think about this. Really, is there any day that we shouldn't be good? That we shouldn't care about someone? Is there any day that's wrong to do good? No. And did you notice there was no answer? These men did not answer. He looked around at them all. I think there was a little moment of uncomfortable silence there. Because it was so obvious. When you think about it, is there any day that we could cross off and say, don't have to do good today? I mean, that's just ridiculous. And he knows that, and he wants them to think about it. He looked around at them all, and then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. Now, we know the story, and, and I don't think I ever thought about this before, but stretch out your hand. Now, this man... He had, he had a hand that was shriveled. I don't think it worked. A shriveled hand does not work. Maybe his whole arm didn't work. And for Jesus to say, stretch out your hand, I think that, was, that had to be another test because your natural human instinct, when maybe from birth you said this, maybe for years and years, but this arm, this hand hasn't worked. And Jesus is saying, stretch it out. And look, and he did so. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. Now, if you were there, and you watched this, you watched this all transpire. You watched this special needs man stand up in front 
and just so willing, be obedient. And then to have Jesus heal him completely. And you watch that man look at his hand for the first time. Well, wouldn't you just been so excited, so thrilled for the guy? And look, look at verse 11. But they were furious. They were furious. Look how your spiritual eyes can be blinded. Your spiritual that you miss the whole, the whole joy and the beauty of not only who Jesus is, but what he's doing. They're just furious. And look what they do. They begin to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. They're so worried about a few little grains being picked. Few little kernels. They're so worried about the fact that that this was done on the Sabbath. And instead of seeing the joy and having a heart to care for people, they're plotting already. Now, that's okay to do that on the Sabbath. See, that's why Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. You're so spit and polished on the outside, but you are so rotten on the inside. But remember, he said last week, he said this week, but Jesus knew what they were thinking. He knows. He sees their heart. We talked last week. We see it again. Luke wants to reinforce. Jesus has been looking and watching for the right people with the right hearts to be able to, to use. And I don't think that that's changed. He looks at our heart. But these religious leaders, to think that they're furious and they're already plotting. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Spent the whole night praying to God. I would say that he was pretty intense about making sure he made the right choice. Because he went to prayer all night because he knew he had to pick the right 12. He wanted to make sure with his father because obviously it says when the morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them. So Jesus is starting to get other followers. Disciple means follower of Christ. And so there, there are more coming that are followers of Christ. So Jesus prays all night to make sure now he's going to choose 12 that are going to be with him, him for three years, walking every step with him, being, a, being helpful. So he wants the right ones. So, yeah, you read the words. You, you read who he chooses. He chose these specific 12. Simon, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James. And then you get to this one, Judas Iscariot, who Luke makes sure we know who became a traitor. Now, Jesus prayed all night to pick the right 12. Why would he pick one that he knew was going to be a traitor? And if it ever entered your mind, or if you ever were taught this, I don't mean to just come right on and say you're wrong, but you are. And that is, 
Judas was not created. Judas was not created. His mission on earth was to betray Jesus. That was not why Judas was, that is not why Judas was created. Judas had every opportunity just like the other 11. He had the same choices. He listened to the same messages, the same teaching. He watched the same miracles. He had the same opportunities. So why did Jesus pick him? And I think it was because Jesus is always teaching and everything that he does, he is teaching. And I think by having one, he says, look at you can walk with me, you can talk with me, you can be with me every day, you can watch me every second, you can, you can hear me, you can see me, all that. And yet, you can still choose to either plug your ears, shut your eyes, you choose to not see who Jesus is. And I think that's so good for us to see because it's so easy to just think, well, you know, you're just going to pass into this. No, it's a choice you make. It is that humble choice you make. Judas could not see himself for what he was. Now, the other 11, they didn't know totally until Pentecost but they, were, they had a heart that was willing to learn. And then their eyes, spiritual eyes were opened. Every, every one of those 11 were martyred. John wasn't murdered, but he was put in a damp cave when he was old. And he was a prisoner there on the island of Patmos. So he too suffered for Christ. Judas, we know that when, when all of a sudden it and it just, he realized what he, he had done. He was so remorseful. He tried to give the money back, didn't he? He tried to give the money back. They wouldn't take it. So he threw it. He was so remorseful. But you know what? He could have still, in that last hour, he still could have gone to Jesus. He still could have repented. He still could have been so sorry. He knew what he had done, but he could not humble himself. He could not humble himself to say those words, to confess, to repent. But what a lesson for us to be able to be that close, to hear that much, to see that much, and still, you think you're self-sufficient. You just can't humble yourself. He went down with him, verse 17, he went down with him and stood on a level place. I think Luke makes sure we see that this is not Matthew 5. This is not the Beatitudes that was done on Mount Beatitude, I mean on a mountain. This was a different time. This was, this is like the Sermon on the Plain instead of Sermon on the Mount. This was to 
the choice disciples. This was to Jesus' disciples. It says a large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coast of Tyre and Sidon. So people came from all over, even from the pagan areas of, of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by evil spirits were cured. And the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. So people came from everywhere to experience the miracles, to have Jesus fix their problems. There, there was a couple words that says, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him. I went back to when Jesus was tempted, and after he was tempted, the angels ministered to his physical needs. But when he went back to Galilee, he, was, he had a power inside of him. Jesus was able to do what he did. Yeah, I know he's son of God, but he was son of man, and that's why he was so connected with his father, because he knew he had to have the power the power that was in him, that would work through him, that then would work out of him. And then I couldn't help but think of that verse that Paul did say in Ephesians 3.20. And I think we, for the most part, we always like to take the first half of that verse and we don't realize that there's another part. And he is able to do immeasurably more than we could ever imagine or think. See, and we think that verse is about, about God. And we say, well, of course. Of course he can do a measurable more than I can. He's God and I'm not. But the rest of that verse says, he's able to do immeasurably more through the power that is at work in you and in me. That power that was gifted to us at Calvary. And just think, this is what enables us to move out of our comfort zone. This is what enables us to do what we think is impossible. But that's why Paul said he is able to do immeasurably more than what we could ever imagine or think because the power of God is working in us, through us, and out of us. And we can stand amazed at what he can do in us mere mortals. It's important to know that we need to be connected to that power source. Look at verse 20, looking at his disciples. So in the middle of all this crowd, his disciples are there, but we know it says that the people came from all over. But in the, in the middle kind of, of doing miracles, it says, it's like he turned and he looked at his disciples and he said, it's Bible study time. It's Bible study time, and it's like, you are my disciples, and I want you to see this is, he's talking to you and me here so specifically. He said, if you're going to be my disciple, this is what's got to happen. And then he's also going to contrast. This is what's got to be, a, this is what's got to happen to be a follower of mine. But if you choose not, then starting with verse 24, instead of hearing blessed, 
you're going to hear whoa. So he lays it right out there. So he starts, he turns to his disciples. If you profess to be a follower of Christ, he is saying, blessed are you. And I know that the word blessed is not anything to do with the world. It has to do with like Ephesians 1 where Paul says that we have been blessed. We as his children have been blessed with every spiritual blessing from the heavenly realms. But our pastor said something a week ago Sunday. He put it in such good words, and I'm so glad he did. He said, blessed means anything, anything in your life that draws you closer to him, that gets you to know him better. And that helps me to understand because sometimes I can look at things in my life and they certainly don't look like blessings. But if they draw me closer to the Lord Jesus, then that's what he classifies a blessing. I read a story. I wish I had written the man's name down because I didn't recognize him, but maybe you would. But there was a man that said when he was a little boy, one Christmas, all he asked for was a bike. And that Christmas morning, he couldn't wait. He ran down the stairs, and he was just expecting to see a new bike. But instead, under the tree was a used typewriter. Can you imagine the letdown? He was just devastated. Well, this man ended up becoming uh, a theologian, a religious writer, um, that his writings then and, um, helped so many other people. All of a sudden, he realized, I needed that typewriter. The typewriter, that used typewriter, was a blessing. It drew me closer, and then it allowed me to learn how to type so that others could, could get closer. And it just kind of helps you to see that sometimes we're, we're disappointed. We're disappointed. And we almost say to the Lord, if you call this a blessing, I beg to differ. But we don't see what's down the road. We, we don't see that, that that old typewriter, when we wanted something else, wasn't that old typewriter was God's plan. The bike wasn't. And so it, it's just so good to kind of relate that story to some of our disappointments. And that now we look back and what we never thought was a blessing really was a blessing. Because when I didn't have anywhere else to go, I found, yes, his grace is sufficient. Yes, he did never leave me. He did walk me through this. The lessons we can learn sometimes. And so Jesus is looking at his disciples and he says, I want you to know, you will be blessed. This will draw you so close. Blessed are you who are poor. And when Jesus uses the word poor, he makes sure that we know it doesn't necessarily have to be money. Blessed are, blessed are you who are poor. If you want to know the definition of poor, poor is when you are helpless and you need help. When you yourself do not have what it takes 
So you have to reach out for help. Well, of course, you know, that's with physical. If you are without, you reach out for help. But spiritual, he says, I want you to know you'll be blessed if you come to that point that you are selfless. You realize that you are hopeless. You are helpless. And you can't save yourself. You are poor because you are lost. And the only way that you can change this is for you to reach out to the only one that can change your situation. So blessed are you when you finally realize that you need help, that you need salvation, you need redemption. And then look, for yours, for yours is the kingdom of God. He's saying to his disciples, his early followers, he said, if you come to the point, and this is the number one step that is a must, he starts this off. Blessed are you when you realize you don't have what it takes. You are poor. But if you do reach out for the only one, yours will be the kingdom of God. You then will see all which yours. Not only are you going to be given promises, not only are you going to be encouraged, not only are you going to be grown and matured, not only are you going to be promised a future, you're going to be walking with me. Yours is the kingdom of God. And it starts on the day that you realize you're poor. And then he says, okay, the next step. Once you've realized, verse 21, that you're poor, he's the only one and you've gained the kingdom of God. Now, he says, blessed are you who hunger, who hunger now. So now, now I want you to hunger. I want you to have a drive. I want you to focus in. I want you to know that you've got to constantly be working at this. You've got to want to hunger. Hunger now for, for what? You hunger for him. You hunger for his word. You hunger for instruction. And then what does he say will happen? You will be satisfied. You will know what it's like to be satisfied. Completely satisfied. His word is the only one thing that can satisfy you. He'll, he'll keep feeding you. And what's so beautiful about hungering for his word is that when you study one day and then oh, you, you just feel so satisfied. But then the next morning, it's like, oh, I got to get into his word again. It's like you'll hunger for more. He'll continually satisfy, but then you will continue to hunger. That's what Jesus wants because it's endless to what we can learn and know. Blessed are you who weep now. Blessed are you who weep now. That you see this. You see yourself. You see that cross. It became real to you. You, you are in his word and you watch how that word is just so real. And it's so 
applicable to just what you need right now. And it causes you to weep because you know your lost condition before. And he is now saying, I could change all that for you. And what does that do? It makes you laugh, not a ha-ha funny. You laugh with joy. I know some of you have told this story, but, it, but it's just so personal to me. And, and I never knew, really, the depth of the, what this experience was going to do. Now I look at our son Chad, and I think he knew all along, but he didn't, he didn't tell me. He just let me experience it. On Mother's Day, 10 years ago, on Mother's Day, I was nearing 60 years old, and he's living in Iowa. And so he calls me first, and he says, Happy Mother's Day. He says, I want you to go to your computer, and I, I have your present on the computer. And so, of course, I went there, and then he walked me through, and, and then all of a sudden, flash on the screen, it said, Congratulations. You have now been registered into the Disney Marathon. And I said to Chad, I said, Are you, you're joking, right? And he said, no, I'm not. And I said, I really thought you loved me. And he said, I do love you. That's why, that's why I, want you to, I want you to experience this. So I said to him, I said, okay, I'm a walker, but how can I run 26.2 miles? How are you so sure that I can do this? And he said, I'll send you a book. I'll send you a book. And you know how all these yellow books are, whatever subject for dummies? Well, this is how to run a marathon for a dummy, you know? But anyway, within two days, I got this book. And he said, if you follow the instructions. See, this was going right over my head. I was just so in shock about the reality of my physical body having to go through this that I never saw that there was going to be more to it. So I get the book in the mail, and it didn't say for dummies. It really didn't. But it did give stark, point-blank instructions on how to prepare yourself for a marathon. And this was the month of May. It wasn't until January 10 that I was going to do it. So plenty of time, Chad says. So I followed the book. I followed every page. I did everything the book told me to do. And then, the, then when it came to your, your big long run was always on the weekend. And I can remember it was like the first part of December. I was kind of winding down, last chapter of the book. I was up to mile 18. So on this Saturday morning, I had to run 18 miles in sleet. Now, I don't cuss, but I was close because it was such a miserable day, and all I could think of is why am I doing this? Just because he said it would be good for me. 
but I did the 18 miles. The next week was 20. You never did 26.2 because the adrenaline would take you the last 5.2 miles. So my last long run was 20 miles. In that day, we had a foot of snow. So I went on a, I went on a treadmill and I started at six in the morning and I stayed on that treadmill without getting off until 11 o'clock. And my only, my only reward was I packed two peanut butter sandwiches and I would break them in half so every hour as I finished an hour, I would get a half a peanut butter sandwich. And then that would give me the energy to get to the next hour. And that was my fuel for the actual race day too. Because it got me through the training. I figured it'd get me through the race. You know, it's so funny. Everybody else is eating and drinking all these special drinks and, and protein bars. And I'm eating a peanut butter sandwich. But that's what did me. That's what did me well. That's the food I needed. And then the race day comes and we have to get up at 3.30 or 3 because we had to be there at 4. It's 26 degrees in Florida. And we're standing around waiting. There's thousands of people. Disney thought it was fun with music and characters. I didn't think it was too fun because all I could think about was the job that awaited me. And then the announcer, the announcer came on and he said, athletes, get into position. And Tom looked at me and busted out laughing. And he said, I never thought at this age I would ever hear someone call you an athlete. Because I'm uncoordinated, I'm left-handed, and I throw and catch with the same hand. I'm just terribly not good sports. And then now I'm called an athlete. So the gun goes off, and I start the run, and here I'm going along, and then I know that it's 13.1 miles. Halfway point is coming. Halfway point is coming. And I'm feeling good. I'm feeling quite strong. And I can't wait to see Tom. See, Chad, he could have come. He could have come and he could have most definitely run the race with me like nothing. But he did this on purpose. He did it on purpose. He wanted me to study alone, follow the instruction book alone, and do it alone. So even though I was at the, oh, alone during it all, I still looked forward to seeing Tom at 13.1 miles. And so I was stretching my neck, and, and sure enough, I saw him. And so I'm ready to hear him shouting and shouting my name and shouting, great job, you're halfway, you're doing fabulous. I was expecting all the compliments. And instead he shouted, are you keeping your pace? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't think I was ever going to forgive him. I really didn't. Because I, I thought I needed, I thought I needed all the accolades. But Tom knew what I needed. 
Now, I can always get emotional because, because the way this all fits now, it's not so much the physical race anymore. It's the beauty of the details and how, he, how Jen knew that someday I would put all the pieces together and I would understand a portion of scripture like I would have never understood it before. And how Tom had, had just the sense to not give me the accolades that humans always need. But I needed to be kept on my pace. That's the way I trained. Keep on your pace. See, Disney doesn't allow you to do it all day. They, they put you in a confined time element. And I had known this, that they send around a big orange truck. And if they, if they know you're not going to make it, they pick you up. Well, I know I wasn't going to be a speed demon. And so in the back of my mind, and I got to mile 18. And I remember saying to the lady who was standing there at the water, I said to her, is that orange truck anywhere behind me? Is it close anywhere? And she smiled and she said, no, you're doing fine. So I was encouraged and I kept going. And then I get to mile 24. And all of a sudden, I get a Charlie horse like I've never had before. It is so painful. And how are you going to run with that Charlie horse? I can still almost feel it. But I'm at mile 24. I can't possibly give up now. So I dragged my leg. And as it would be, it kind of worked itself out in the next mile and a half or so. And I know I'm getting close. And I'm tired. I am so weary. And I hear this man, I hear this man out of nowhere shout my name. He said, Lindell, wait until you turn the corner. And like I said, I was so tired of, is that an angel? Because I thought it was an angel. Because how does he know my name? And then I looked down, it's right there. It's <laughs> but that gave me just what I needed, and I turned that corner, and there was the great big sign that said, finish. And... I mean, this is, this is where it gets still, it gets emotional because I crossed that line. And the verse that Chad said to me, it just came full blown. One thing I don't do is look back. I keep moving forward and I press toward the goal, the prize. Yeah, Tom was my prize in some respect because he was there and I just fell into his arms. But then they placed over my head the Mickey Mouse medal. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that sounds so superficial. It sounds so silly. But all of a sudden, that verse. And when Paul said, I have run the race. I have finished. I finished well. All of a sudden, the flood of emotions came over me because 
this is just our life. Our life is a marathon. And sometimes you're going to throw a Charlie horse. And you think you can't go any farther. And then he sends someone your way that calls you by name. Right person, right place, right time. But the main thing that I kept seeing was I was able to do this because I followed the instruction book, just like Chad said. You, you alone, nope, not a group, just you, you choose to open that instruction book and you obey it and you get out there and do it. You will finish strong and you will feel completely satisfied. The words, I did it. I really did it. But the, one of the best parts is the man that put the Mickey Mouse medal over my head said these words, had no idea what he was saying. He just said, well done. See, see how the emotion comes? Because you think, isn't that what we do this for? That someday our Savior will say those words to us, well done, you have finished well, you followed the instruction book, you did what I told you to do. And then, i got to tell you, through the tears, I laughed. I laughed because of all what Jesus said I would do. Through your weeping, you will laugh with joy. I haven't rehashed that experience in such a long time, but it just fits so perfectly. And then in verse 23, rejoice. See, rejoice in that day. No, verse 22, I forgot that. Jesus goes on and says, blessed are you when men hate you. I mean, you just think about the, the marathon run that we're on. And, and we get farther and farther down, and the older we get or whatever, we get closer to our eternal home. And you are just filled with, with this joy. But then he comes down and says to the disciples, to us, he said, if you think that this is going to be easy, Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Boy, that, that was a hard verse to hear after verses 20, 21, and 22. 21. Blessed are you when men hate you, exclude you, insult you, reject your name. You know what I did? I started... I started thinking back, and I started thinking of all the names people have called me to my face. Oh, I can about imagine what they're saying behind my back. But these are the ones that I heard to my face. I remember one lady coming up to me and said, you are just such a disgrace to the name of Jesus. And I mean, that just ripped my heart out. I mean, you can't say, something like that to me 
and not have it affect me. But she knew what she was doing. So I said, can you tell me why? What makes you call me a disgrace? Because I, I want to change that. And she says, well, just look at you. Look at that nail polish. And it was all just trivial stuff. It had nothing to do with the music or what I said or anything like that. It just had to do, she just didn't like me. She didn't like my nail polish. She didn't like my dress. And she went on and on. Somebody else walked up to me and said, you know, I've got a name for you. It's Floozy. Another one came up to me and said, um, you're fake. Another one falsely accused. And somehow that never stops. I still am having it yet today. When you're falsely accused, they just make something up. And then when I had a minister say to me, when he believed a false accusation, when he chose to believe the accusation instead of me, he said, we can't allow sinners like you in our church. These things came to my mind, and I don't dwell on them, but no wonder Jesus said that to his new disciples. I want you to brace yourself. I remember when Chad preached his first sermon. He called me up at noon. He must have just got done. And he called me up. And I said, well, how did it go? Because we were out singing. And he said, well, I thought it went good until I was shaking hands with people and this gentleman just raked me over the coals. I said, what did you preach? He said, I preached Psalm 121. I said, what could go wrong with Psalm 121? He said, I don't know, but he sure did. I said, Chad, I'm sorry to have to say this to you, but welcome to ministry. Isn't that sad? Welcome to ministry. I said to him, I said, well, what did you say to the band? He said, well, I guess we're just going to have to agree to disagree. I said, I'm proud of you. I said, then what did you do? He says, I went in the other room and cried. No wonder Jesus said to those disciples, there's some nasties out there. But then look what he says. Rejoice. What? Rejoice. Aren't you glad you know the difference between joy and happiness? Because when these things happen to you, you're not happy. That's why rejoice in that day and leap for joy. Because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. You are so in good company. Jesus is saying to his disciples. They treated Isaiah and Jeremiah the same way. But then look at the contrast. In verse 24, but woe to you. You don't, you don't see a word blessed there, do you? But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. 
That basically means you're comfortable and happy. You've got life exactly the way you want it. Well, woe to you because guess what? You've received your comfort now. And then he says, and woe to you who are well fed now. You haven't got a concern in the world. You haven't got a need. Oh, you don't even realize what you ultimately need, but you're so caught up in this world and all what you have that you don't, you know, you don't even hunger because you're so well fed. Well, you're going to be hungry someday. Woe to you who laugh now. Oh, life's good. For you will mourn and weep. And I looked at that. Look at the result when it says, you have already received your comfort. You will go hungry. You will mourn and weep. Doesn't that sound, doesn't that sound like hell? You're not going to be comfortable. You're going to hunger and thirst. You are going to weep and mourn. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Oh my goodness, That's, that feels so good. That feels so good when, when men speak well of you. But look, at the, but look at this, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. See the difference there. And then did you notice that the Bible study isn't done? He starts moving right into, but I tell you, who hear me, love your enemies. Disciples, I'm sending you out there. This is how I want you to live your life. Once you know that your life is the where it should be, this is the behavior you need to act in. I tell you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other one also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Love your enemies. And we're not just talking that superficial feeling kind of love. Love the way Jesus loved you because you were once his enemy. And aren't you glad that he loved you? It's the kind of love that, that Stephen said when the, when the stones were being hurled at him. Forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. It's when Jesus hung on the cross, when he said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. It's that kind of love. What enables you and I to be able to do that? Because humanly, that's just not possible. To love enemies, to do good to those who hate you. To those who talk about you, who call you names, who laugh at you, who think you're a joke. Love them. 
Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love you. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repay, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. How do you do that? Because I think he wants us to keep remembering. Like I said, Jesus did that for you and I. But now we have a power inside of us. We've got a power inside of us that will work in us, through us, and then out of us. And it's the same power that Jesus had. We can do immeasurably more than what we could ever imagine or think because my normal me, right in the kisser. You want people to pay and hurt the way they hurt you. What enables us to be able to do it the way Jesus did? It's because we have, we have what it takes. We have the very spirit of Jesus in us. We have no excuse. Look what he says, then your reward will be great. And you will be sons of daughters of the Most High. What a title. We follow his instruction. How do you finish well when someone is doing this to you? Because you know your title. I am a daughter of the Most High. With his power working in me. And it says because he is kind to the ungrateful, to the wicked. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. See, you can do one of two things. This is another choice again. When these things happen to you, you have one of two choices. You can react in justice, payback, justice. Or you can act in mercy. And it said, be merciful. That's the way your father was to you. That's how we do it. And then do you notice verse 37, Bible study's not over. He continues, do not judge. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Do not judge. Do you know that this phrase is, I mean, even people who aren't Christians, who never read their Bible, will still take verse 37 of Luke chapter 6 and quote it, saying, see, Jesus said, do not judge. Do not judge. That means Jesus is total accepting of any lifestyle, of any teaching, because everyone's different. And 
It isn't up to you to judge them. Oh, they love that. And you know who else does that? Church people. But church people who never open their Bibles. That's why it's so critical that step two, after blessed are you who are poor, is blessed are you who hunger. That's why Jesus makes sure that his disciples know you've got to stay in God's word. That's the only way you're going to be able to live the way I expect you to live. You have to know what your Bible says because even though Christians, the followers of Christ, we are taught to unconditionally love. Unconditionally love someone. Because we know that Jesus takes us just as we are. But the Bible does not say that his disciples, that Christians are supposed to unconditionally approve of everything when it goes contrary to God's word. But unless you know God's word, you're not going to know. Now, do not judge. I kind of like it putting it this way. Do not pass judgment. Do not pass judgment so, you know, when you first see do not judge, we've got to see that Jesus is talking to us and what does he mean when he says do not judge? What, how do we judge people? If it doesn't mean that we are to just accept everything because we can't judge them, what's the difference? What does Jesus mean when he says do not judge? Do not pass judgment on who. And this is where I find myself guilty. I can pass judgment on people. I can look at someone. And I, I hope and pray I'm learning. But it's so easy to look at someone and you might not know them. And yet, because they're not like you or look like you or act like you or whatever, they might have even made a couple mistakes and you've got them already cased as impossible. They're just losers. Just get your act together. It's so easy to judge someone without even thinking that there could be something going on behind closed doors that you don't know. Probably the greatest lesson for me was when our son Jason, for seven years, led a group called the Gothics. It was called Golgotha, but it was the Gothics. You know, black clothes, white makeup. They were creepy. And for seven long years, he worked with those kids. And I, I have to admit... When I looked at those kids, yeah, I passed judgment. Thinking about, what is the matter with you kids? What in the world are you trying to do? You just want attention, don't you? You know what I learned after I got to know them? After Jason made me go in and get to know them? I found out that these kids... I found out that these kids came from homes that you and I can't even fathom. 
when I would take some of these kids home and know what they were going to go into, the impossible situations that they were living in, and one night I watched the police come and haul one of the kids out, and I thought, oh, brother, now what did he do? Come to find out, he walked back in, and I said, what's the matter? And he said, well, the police just had to tell me that they had to haul my mom off to prison. And I had to take him home that night. I said, is there anybody there? He said, oh, there'll be somebody. But his mom just got hauled off to prison. But oh, no, no, I look at them. Would you get your act together? You know, yeah, they're trying to get attention. You bet they are. They don't even care if it's bad attention. They just need some attention. That's why I read the whole thing. Do not judge do not condemn. Forgive. Give. Did you ever try, instead of passing judgment on someone, maybe, just maybe, they could use a few, few words about Jesus. How much Jesus loves them. How worth it they are. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. Don't judge. You don't know. You just... Live out me. Let them see a light in you, some hope in you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. I thought about that verse, and you know, that's why we sang that song tonight, because I think that verse really means it might be difficult to do, but it will be worth it all. It will be worth it all. When we see Jesus, just one little glimpse of his dear face. Just one glimpse. And then verse 39, he's still not done with the Bible study. He also told them this parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. See, he's saying, when you are taught, when you're taught by Jesus in his word, isn't that your goal? To be like your teacher. And you know, in our, in our lives, we have children, we have grandchildren, we have neighbors, we have people that are watching us. This is, the, in the next few verses, he's pretty much saying, I need you to take a good look at yourself. Disciples, followers of mine, people are watching you. And maybe, you know what, maybe you're blind yourself. Maybe in your heart, you're blind yourself. And people are going to follow you. And you know what, the, the two of you are going to walk together right into the pit. People are following you. And you need to know who you're following. Because if you aren't real and you're following more of the world, that person who's trusting you, together you are going to go right into the ditch. This is such an evaluation of your heart. 
This is such a Bible study Jesus has given when he looked at his disciples and started the study. That this is what you need to be like. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and you pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? We're so good at seeing someone else's sin, aren't we? But Jesus puts it in this illustration. You're so good to make sure someone sees that you see that speck. So, oh, you want to tell someone about that sin. He's saying, before you go and, and, t- and tell somebody about the speck in their eye, because to me, this was almost laughable. I thought, you, you're so concerned about that speck, but as you're taking out someone's speck, you've got this great big old plank in yours. All Jesus is saying, just check to see. There comes a time, and that's why he said, there's going to come a day where, yes, I am going to ask you, call you to, because that person has a speck in their eye. They do have sin in their life, and they don't see it. But if the plank is out of yours, and your whole objective is them, because if you come at somebody with a, pl- with a plank in your own eye, all you really are saying is, you know, i got to show you your sin. Because that makes me feel better about me. So it's really about you, isn't it? It's about your interest. But Jesus says, I want to make sure that the plank is out of your eye. Because then it's called a different word when you go to somebody. It's called correcting. Because you have their best interest in mind. And it's very important that they're not seeing their sin. So the Lord is going to use you. It's not a fun, easy job. But Paul talks about it in Galatians. Look what he says, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to, to see the plank in your own eye. Look what title you all, you're going to get. You hypocrite, and you've got it coming. We, we absolutely can't stand that word hypocrite. But Jesus says, unless you hear these words, unless you follow this instruction book, it is so easy to see the sin in someone else's life. You hypocrite. First take the blank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. See, there's a time and place for that. And then in the last few verses, he talks about no good tree bears bad fruit. No good tree bears bad fruit. Nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. I mean, it doesn't take much to figure out. 
He's associating a tree with our life. And he's saying, what are you feeding your tree? What are you feeding your life? What are you storing up in your heart? Because if you think that just because the outside is, looks like a good tree to everybody else, he said, it's going to eventually show itself as a bad tree. It eventually will, because all of the fruit, fruit is what's coming out of us. And so if you've got a good tree, and it's going to produce good fruit, that's the action. It's the fruit of God's Spirit that will come out of you. It's the words that come out of your mouth. It's because you've stored up into your heart God's words. He says, I'm just trying to put this in all different ways so that you can check to see what is in your heart. What is your life like? Out of the overflow of your heart, that mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of your heart comes the kind of fruit that people are going to see. Fruit of yourself or fruit of his spirit. And it all has to do with what you are listening to, what you're feeding your soul with, what you're storing in your heart. And then this is how he closes his Bible study. Why do you call me Lord? Why do you call me Lord? He asks them, he asks them this question. Because they have been. They've been calling him Lord. And you know, we do too. We call him, oh, he's Lord. We sang it tonight. He's Lord. What does Lord mean? That he is over all. He's in all. He's through it all. He is the Lord of our life. We have given him our life. And he has freed us from our sin. And yet now we are enslaved to him. Because we are not our own anymore. We've been bought with a price. He is our Lord. And Jesus asked people point blank, okay, why do you call me Lord? Because if you call me Lord and you mean it, then you'll do what I say. But I'm asking you, you're calling me Lord, then why don't you do what I say? If you think that I am overall, in all, and through all, then why don't you listen to me? Why don't you follow the instructions so that you can finish well? Because that's the only way you're going to finish well. It's the only way you're going to truly be satisfied. Verse 47 is pretty much the crux of this whole chapter. Remember Jesus talking to his disciples. He's talking to us, followers of Christ. And he said, I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He's saying, I will show you. This is what I want. I will show you what he is like. This is, this is exactly what I want. Here's the three steps. Come to me. Come to me. You need to surrender yourself back to me. Surrender to me. Come to me. Step number two, hear my word. Hear my word. 
And it's it's the exact three things that he said in verses 21 and 22. This is a must. This is what I want. I want you to come to me. I want you to surrender yourself to me. I want you to know that you can't do it without me. I'm the only one that can save you. And then I want you to move beyond that now and get to know me better. I want you to hear my word. And then the third, this is what's going to make me Lord in your life. You've surrendered, you're listening to instruction, and you're obeying it. You're doing it. You're putting it into practice. And then, and then he puts it in this just little visual. It's like the wise men. It's like the man who was building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. And when the flood came and the torrent struck that house, it did not shake because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And the moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. We've heard this story so much, but Jesus is saying, disciples, this is what you got to know. You can build a house and they can look identical. You can use the same color scheme. You can use the same decorator. They are identical. It all has to do on what kind of foundation are you going to build this house? And how are you going to know the difference from the visual eye on a calm day? You can't. But the second the storm hits, it's going to be very noticeable on what kind of foundation you have built your house on. This is the way Jesus ended this. Your call, your choice. It's either my way or your way if you think you're so smart. But I think he ended like this because he said, I want you to think about it. I want you to think about this Bible study because it has to do with your life and your eternity, your relationship with me, and what others see in you. I tell you, that's pretty important. Heavenly Father, thank you for this study. Thank you for the Bible study that you gave in Luke chapter 6. Father, may we see it. May we desire to want to do what it says. And that's how we're changed. That's how we are transformed into the likeness of our Savior. We can shine that light and we can act and we can talk without fear because we know what's in our heart. We have stored your word in our heart. And we're listening to that power source that works in us, through us, and out of us. Father, we thank you for tonight. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.